0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Worldview took a whirlwind tour of the Great Lakes region a few weeks ago, exploring global communities within road-distance trips of Chicago. While we were in Toronto, Worldview's Ashish Valentine met up with Maria Kamar, who is best known, maybe, for providing a lot of the backdrops for the Mindy Project on Fox and Hulu. Maria likes to mimic comic book aesthetics inspired by pop artist Roy Lichtenstein. In bold speech bubbles, English and other languages are mixed freely, as though to mimic conversations in the South Asian diaspora. She works under the name Hate Copy, which reflects her background in advertising, but her artistic inspiration runs much deeper.
1: Maria, thanks for taking the time to join me.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, So I want to start by talking a little bit about your work and how you got started as an artist. Your work is composed of these beautiful depictions of South Asian women and uh, these characters depicted in often very humorous or witty scenes as comic books. Can you talk about um, how you got started as an artist and how you developed your artistic voice?
2: Sure. I started drawing and painting, I think, the moment I was born. It was something that I gravitated towards almost instantly. It's The only way I learned, I wasn't the type of kid to read, you know, large novels or big walls of text. They kind of confused me. So I gravitated more towards comic books and graphic novels and and things like that just because it was easier for me to learn and pick up. Um, I guess my brain was just wired a little bit differently. So to me, art was just a way of communicating just like reading and writing would be.
1: So I understand that you, uh, you grew up in Pakistan and then uh, you moved to Mississauga in Canada. Um, can you talk about what growing up was like? What sorts of influences your art draws from, both Pakistani and Canadian?
2: So I was born to a Bengali father and a Gujarati mother. They fell in love in Pakistan where they had my brother and I. And then immediately after we were born, they applied to move to the West so I was actually raised with a mix of cultures that I was very grateful for. But to me, that was my initial taste of multiculturalism, which was within my own culture. Uh, and a lot of that is influenced in my work. So a lot of you know, the references to food and, and language and you know, some of the words that I even use in, in the speech bubbles aren't always Hindi. They're always uh, a mix and, mix and match of the cultures that I grew up in. I think the body of work that uh, everyone's most familiar with is the pop art, um, the ladies that are crying at burnt the Rotis and all that. Um, I started making those when I got laid off from my job in advertising and uh, basically trying to take time away from looking on LinkedIn to find like a stable job that I was expected to have and I was like, I'm going to take this day to do something that I really want to do today. And what I really wanted to do was just draw. It was just draw something that made me laugh, draw something that made me smile. And the influence for the first piece that I did was I burnt the rotis as a lady looking, very distressed. Uh, it was very Lichtenstein. I think it was inspired by a Lichtenstein piece. And that was influenced by like basically like an Indian soap opera, or like the, the dramatic nature of, of an Indian soap opera, if you've ever seen it. There would be scenes where you know, a lady would be shocked or crying and the camera would zoom in on her expression. (laughs) Like in and out constantly for like five minutes. If you take a still from an Indian soap opera and you put it next to a Roy Lichtenstein piece, it's so identical. It's like almost the exact same idea, the same concept, but it's coming from two opposite sides of the world. And to me, that was very fascinating and, and encapsulated who I am as a person as well. You know, I'm from, you know, the the East, but I I'm now live in the West and I'm kind of a mix of both these cultures, uh, not one or the other, but both combined. And they're, you know, they used to wrestle before I used to be like, well, what am I more of? But now, as I've grown older, I've gotten very comfortable with the fact that I can be both and I'm comfortable with being both. And and I'm proud of all the cultures that have influenced me so far
1: so the piece you're describing is one in which a South Asian woman has burnt a roti mm-hmm. um, and there's a speech bubble she's like, oh no I burnt the roti and she's so she's definitely she's incredibly I thought that excellent.
2: was like the funniest thing on this planet and when I shared it it got like uh, five likes and I was like damn this is popular and then it got ten likes and then 15, and I was like, ooh, I'm famous now. So I was like, okay, I gotta make more, because it's clearly my friends love this stuff. And so I made, like, you know, a couple more, and then I just kept doing it, because it, it took away the stress of being unemployed and... And broke, and you know, kind of not in a place where I needed to be in my career in my life. It's just something that made me laugh, and then eventually it became almost like a portfolio of work that I was creating online, which led to the rise of, of I guess, what is now known uh, as as Hate Copy, the brand. But it, it was a slow build up to what it is.
1: So, is your background in advertising where the name Hate Copy comes from?
2: It's exactly where the name hate copy comes from I actually created the account so that my professors in at school and uh, my employers would not find me that's not the case anymore (laughs) I think everybody found out but I I tried to change it actually when um, the work was being picked up on like BuzzFeed and things like that but I think it was too late at that point I think people started referring to it as oh that's like a hate copy piece and I was like I guess that has like a nice ring to it it has a story behind it I'll stick to it
1: so the characters that are often depicted in your work—they're uh, often South Asian women. They're often together. Um, one of your famous books is called *Trust No Auntie*. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about how your work explores um, relationship dynamics within South Asian communities, especially between women?
2: I grew up in a very matriarchal home. I was raised by a lot of aunties, a lot of older siblings, older sisters, grandmas. You know. So my influences were women from the start. It was the bond between women. It was the love and the care and the friendship that you know, basically supported me throughout my childhood and up until when we moved here. Um, but it also kind of reminded me of the ways in which patriarchy embeds itself within our culture where women use these... Not tactics, but what is it? Like, they use these... um, Where it's like, you know, where you think something is being said to you for the betterment of you, but it's actually just old-school patriarchal advice that's just used to get you to marry off to somebody. Just
1: self-policing?
2: Self-policing, and I don't think... That's kind of what what I became obsessed with when I started doing my work, is that I love... I love all the women that raised me. I love all the women that are involved in my life. Why don't we love ourselves? You know, why is it that I started hearing about marriage and babies when I was only 15. You know, why is it that I'm told to marry a doctor but not become one? Well, I mean, I was told that too. But, you know, there's a lot of things where if we just use that energy to encourage women to be more independent, young girls to follow their path regardless of what that path is in the way that boys are encouraged, a very simple notion, but it's something that needs to be Repeated and kind of drilled into the minds of, like, you know, our parents going, "I know you want what's best for us. Let's really talk about what's tradition and what's patriarchy disguised as tradition." And that's what the book "Trust No Auntie" explores. It explores really the the dynamic between women and how we talk to each other, what we say to each other, uh, how we communicate with our elders. Is it is it all positive? Is it passive-aggressive, and obviously it's in a really satirical, funny way, and it's a coffee table book. It's like you can read in like an hour. But it does have some things in there that are part of my life um, that are kind of how to pick a career that's not doctor, lawyer, engineer. You know, Um, what does the shape of your roti say about you? Is it even important to know how to make a roti? Why can't, you know, that same, you know, a woman should know how to make a good chai You know, my brother doesn't even know how to make a simple boxed mac and cheese, you know, so that that kind of double standard, which I think is funny. It's nice to see it from the outside looking in. So I'd like for my artwork to be kind of a reflection of what I see in in society and for us to look and be like, I've been that person. I don't want to be that person because look at how ridiculous that looks. I don't want to be the person that's telling someone to cover up because of the kind of attention they'll attract, you know, that just sounds, it just makes you look like an asshole, you know.
1: I'm Ashish Valentine and I'm here in Toronto with Maria Kamar. She's a visual artist and is also known on the internet as hate copy. A lot of what we've been talking about is applicable to de- many different societies. I'm South Indian, um, you're Gujarati and Bengali and grew up in Pakistan. Curious if you you could tell me about how your work engages with what patriarchy looks like in a South Asian context and then what solidarity and resistance to patriarchy also look like in that specific context.
2: Yeah, so to me, a lot of it was, you know, my brother is a doctor and I chose to be an artist. So right there and then is that that, um, stark contrast between how he's treated versus how I'm treated. Um, When I used to work in advertising no one bothered to learn what advertising was what I was doing really in fam jams it was mostly like oh Maria Maria is doing she has a marketing degree I never went to university I went to college for two years and like thank god I made it but you know I don't have a degree I have a diploma I went for advertising not marketing these are just things that weren't and you know I mean like Bless everyone who's trying to, like, do their best to learn what what it is that young people nowadays are trying to do. But I think it's also, we need to stop being a little bit lazy in terms of when a woman decides to choose her career. You know, I've noticed that more importance is placed on who she married, like, their career versus who she is and what her career is. So, to me right now, that's kind of, that's been the most important beef with my family. But I think... I don't know, like, a lot of the themes that are, that are explored are, are really just the way young girls and women are, are spoken to, the way the attitudes change when we do something a, a man has been doing for their entire life. Um, obviously, exploring gender theory a little bit.
1: I know a lot of queer and trans-identifying South Asians, especially in the diaspora, really identify with your work. And um, I wanted to ask... Um, how your work sort of tackles like intersections of queer and trans identity and South Asian identity and what your own experience growing up queer has has been like mm-hmm. how it comes through in your work
2: yeah like i grew up wanting to be just in my head normal and to me normal meant everyone just treated me with like a little bit of respect it didn't have anything to do with me wanting to be a certain gender a certain sexuality or certain whatever i just wanted people to just be cool (laughs) but i found out very early on that you people can be cool with you as long as you fit this cookie cutter you know binary that has been created for you if you look a certain way act a certain way only you know um date certain people, only, uh, talk a certain way or whatever it is. That is, that is what normal is. That wasn't what my normal was. So in my mind, I was like, you know, I was who I was and I was trying to convince everyone else to love me. Um, and I think a lot of people are still trying to do that. They're still trying to convince the world that, Hey, listen, it's fine. Like it's 2019, man and man, woman and woman, like whatever it is, it's fine. Like, just be cool. And uh, still, people have a very hard time being cool. So that's, uh, that's kind of where my mind was at when I created my pieces about um, straight like a Jalebi baby, and uh, I now pronounce you uncle and uncle. And because I've, like I've dated both men and women, I identify as bisexual. So to me, that is a very normal thing. Um, But when those pieces were published, they were, you know, everybody was like, oh, that's so brave. That's so, oh, my God. And I was like, that's it's fine. But that's 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 just life for a lot of people. And that's that's normal to me. I don't think that's controversial in any way. A lot of people's lives have been affected because people keep thinking this is a controversial thing. It's time for us to really start educating ourselves about, you know, beyond just beyond the binary, just kind of understand that a lot of people's lives are jeopardized because people refuse to just be cool with it.
1: Tell me a bit more about Straight Like a Jalebi Baby, about I Now Pronounce You Uncle and Uncle. You know, what do these works look like? How are they received by your fans, even by your family?
2: It's a funny story. When I first posted, I think it was in 2015 or 2016, I I posted uh, I Now Pronounce You Uncle and Uncle. And uh, I got a call from my brother going, um, Dad saw your piece. He's uh, he's not very happy about it, and I went, why not? And he's like, you know, I, I tried to I tried to talk to him. Like, you know, it's it's like it's, you know, we're not it's not old school anymore. Like, you gotta really stop being so so angry about things like this. He tried to talk to him about it and. Still, he was kind of in a in a sour mood about what I would made. So when Straight Like a Jalebi Baby came out, he was not impressed. So I basically got five uh, footprints of, made of Straight Like a Jalebi. I got it stretched, and I got it shipped to my parents' house. Um, so the first thing my dad saw at 10 a.m. on a Sunday when he opened his garage was just this big piece of two girls making out he called me just like furious, like, what's going on? Actually, my mom called me and she said, like, she was laughing, she was like, what is this? Why did you have this delivered to our house? I was like, I think it would look really nice in the living room. And I just let them deal with it. You know, obviously social media is great for spreading um, Love and spreading uh, messages of positivity and and all that, but I think it's very very important to have those conversations within your own family because that's where the root is. That's where the root of the the hatred and intolerance begins. That way, in a lot of people's families too. So, um, I like having those conversations at the dinner table, and I like I'm not afraid to to yell at my parents when I need to. Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid to do things like that because how else are they going to understand that this is This is just the tip of the iceberg. This is literally the bare minimum that we can do is just accept. The rest, like, you know, there's so much more that we can also do. But I think for them, a good start is just to accept it Mm -hmm. and then move past it.
1: And it's not just your parents that see your work. I mean, your work is on Instagram, which allows you to have this very direct relationship with the people that are viewing it. So what's that relationship like and what do you think people have gotten from your work?
2: I'm not sure what people have gotten from my work but I can tell you what I've gotten from the people that interact with my work is I've gotten a community that I didn't know existed and a community of people that I can really write back to. I always find myself going through the comments and uh, people tag their friends, and they go, this is you, we well, remember the time this happened, and you were this person. And they would have full-on conversations in the comment section, and I would literally just go in and lurk. <laughs> Sometimes I'd respond, but then I feel like a creep, but it's my page, so I think I can do that. But I like knowing that I'm not alone. And what the community around Hank Copy has given to me is dialogue, a conversation about how I felt growing up, uh, which was very isolated, um, you know, I felt, again, that, that concept of can I just be normal? And I realized that I wasn't the only one. There was, what, like 100, over 100,000 people that feel the exact same way and it blows my mind every single time. So anytime I post something and somebody relates to it, it's like a new thing for me because I didn't know that was something that anybody could relate to.
1: Where are a lot of your followers based? Are they Canadian? Are they part of the diaspora? Do you have a following even within South Asia?
2: Everybody. Everybody. Like, it's, they see everyone, like everywhere. Um, And I think that's really cool because, well, I think it's cool, but I also think it's a little bit like, oh my God, like there's so, first of all, there's like a billion of us on this planet. How do we all feel so alone all the time? What is going on within our own media? You know, like, where's the love there? I think that's something that was very interesting to me. Um, When we only have, like, what, five brown people in American media, but, like, hundreds of them show up to an exhibit or a pop-up. There's so much talent that's out there that's just not at all supported by Western media, and I think that needs to change, like, ASAP. And I think it is. So I'm very, I'm very hopeful about where it's going. But yeah, it's really interesting to know that there's like a, such a large volume of dcs making cool stuff. But the platforms are just not, they they were not provided. I think it's getting better now though.
1: Polish gel chat that Slovak. you sweet like baklava. You know I'm hot as many lava. And if your man them intervene, then I go get the balaclava. Your man them can't see me. Side man, man, i Mario Luigi. That's you on your green dungarees. <laughs>
0: That was Maria Kumar, a Canadian Pakistani artist working under the name Hate Copy. She spoke with Worldview's Ashish Valentine while we were in Toronto a few weeks ago. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more about issues of gender and sexuality in South Asia. I'm Jerome McDonnell and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. So solid like garbage when dropped. Oh no! Yo, you me back like RoboCop. Hey, baby. It's not the girl, but
3: you send the FOMO up. Uh-huh mere
0: This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Maria Kumar is a Canadian visual artist we met in Toronto a few weeks ago. She's originally from Pakistan. It's an identity that she uses to lampoon issues of sexual conservatism and immigrant respectability politics under the brand name Hate Copy. Worldview's Ashish Valentine, who was born in India, picks up the conversation where it left off.
1: I mean, both, both in the countries that we live in and in the countries we come from, uh, attitudes around women's issues around queer issues are changing mm-hmm. um, you know in india section 377 the the colonial era act that prohibited i think it was you know relations that are against the order of nature is mm-hmm. what it was called uh was struck down by the indian supreme court so what do you think what kind of effect do you think these developments have on on attitudes around women's autonomy around queer identity in south asia and in our our own diaspora communities
2: I think when, you know, obviously there's a lot to celebrate, there, you know, we're changing the rules and we're finally kind of seeing some sort of momentum going on behind the rights of of disenfranchised communities and communities that have been hurt by people's misconceptions and people's just old school ideals. But a lot of it is is also rooted in pain. So I think we have to start recognizing the pain that a lot of communities go through. The fact that just coming out to your family could mean losing your home. The fact that something that you knew, that you thought was going to protect you, turns against you in like a second. That kind of pain, I don't think the world understands yet. And I think we need to put way more effort into educating ourselves about trans rights about the rights of people that that couldn't even, they weren't even legally allowed to own homes, you know, in our countries. And I think that's how unfair is that, you know? Um, that kind of that kind of education, I think we need to start talking a bit more about. There's, um, you know, there's there's a, this talk about why are we always talking about the gay community and trans community when it only, cert- like when it when it only entertains us. I believe it was a that said that and 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 they're they're right. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of moments in which we engage with the gay community and trans community in a way when it's serving us entertainment, but when it comes to actually taking action and protecting those communities and fighting for those communities, a lot of us just go silent and and I think that needs to change. So while it's important to also celebrate these moments of you know, these old school laws are being torn down and, and you know, we have some sort of uh, movement towards, well, some sort of freedom, there's also a lot of work to be done um, and a lot of serious work to be done. So I think just being there for our friends in, in those communities and support them mentally and obviously monetarily, um, I think those those kinds of things are very important.
1: Mm-hmm. What really appeals to me about your work too is is not just that it tackles... Issues of women's autonomy, issues of the expression of queer identity, but that it does so in an explicitly South Asian context. Mm-hmm. Because I think media out there depicting the intersections of those realities is just so hard to come by. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I found I found your work on Instagram quite a long time ago, and I remember my first reaction being uh, like, "Indians can do this? Like, <laughs> you know, like South Asian people can can be portrayed this way?" Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like, what are what are your thoughts about you know erasure even within these broader movements and about the need for you know people like us to make our own voices heard
2: i think it's really interesting and like i obviously like what you said i feel i feel the exact same way because when i was doing it uh like making the work i didn't really care to speak to anybody else i made it because i made my brother laugh i made my cousins laugh you know i made people that were close to me like laugh and that to me was the only reason why I was doing it, because we could talk about it afterwards, we could relate to it, and that hasn't changed at all. But I think it's really funny when brands find out about it, because, you know, they're always kind of lurking in the shadows going, ooh, what's trending? Let's, like, find out. Totally. And they would, like, I've had brands reach out to me and go, yeah, like, can you make a mural in your style but then like not have the bindi or like not have them like look this way can you like make can you make it more diverse yikes and i was like what you approach me cuz you need diversity like that's let's just get that straight don't try to make me erase myself from my own work if you need white girl pop art you should go to like the other people doing it not not me you know so that's i think it's really funny when you talk to your people and i think for the most part it's been very positive because people like to lean in and listen in on the conversation and learn a thing or two beyond butter chicken and yoga they go oh what does me mean what does mean i use a lot of swearing in my in my work so i'm sorry if you're only learning cuss words but you know and so i think that is more rewarding and a lot of that is happening but there are a lot of uh, a lot of brands and a lot of people that kind of go, oh, like, can you do something else? Like, can you make it, like, not South Asian? Or, like, what is it? I'm like, no. Like, I'm talking to, like, a, a billion other people on this planet. I think I'm fine with not including anybody else for a minute. Um, it's also why I refuse to translate a lot of the words in my speech bubbles because I don't think, like, I, I'm not, just because I'm pro-us doesn't mean I'm against everybody else. It just means... This is what I'm doing and if you like it cool if you don't ask a, if you don't understand it, you can ask you know your your Daisy friends to translate it for you and maybe they can teach you a little bit something about our culture
1: yeah that's another thing that really speaks to me about it is that it assumes a certain level of familiarity with the culture um, irrespective of, of who is watching hmm Like my lived experience interacting in in a lot of spaces is that anytime my culture is present, people ask me to explain it to them. So I just default to not bring it up.
3: Right.
1: So yeah, what I love about your work is that you don't do that. You do the opposite. You're like, this is me, this is who I am. And if you want to understand it and you don't already, then do the work.
2: Yeah, I mean, Google is free. Google Translate is also free. If you don't understand something, just Google it, bro. Like, it's fine. I mean, I had to do that when I moved to Canada, so it's fine. You know, I had to... I still Google, like, half the 80s references that, that people make because they're like, you haven't seen this movie? You haven't heard of this band? Like, oh my God, how could you miss this rock era? And I was like, I was listening to Bollywood and, like... That industry churns out 600 movies a year. You know how many songs that is to memorize? <laughs> I have an entire bank in my brain that's filled with information that you guys will never know. So, you know, it goes both ways.
1: That is the story of my life as well. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, <laughs> a lot of people were not like, oh, like you don't know Kalahuna Ho? Like-
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's, a, that's an Indian reference for you. <laughs>
1: South Asia is not a monolith, so you know you have Bengali and um, Punjabi. Uh, Gujarati? I have, I have
2: some Punjabi. My, look, my mother is like second youngest of like 13 kids, and they had kids, then their kids had kids. So I have a massive family that's like all over the planet. So you know, some of them could be Punjabi. We don't know. I mean, we know now, but...
1: I mean, in in your work, do you work with the multiplicity of linguistic cultural Mm. identities? Or do you draw more from your own experiences?
2: I try to just do a lot of what I know, just because it's rooted in in truth. But I am influenced a lot by, you know, members of my family that are part of the other cultures. Like, I do have a lot of Punjabi references in my work. I do have a lot of Bengali references in my work. Uh, it, It all kind of creeps its way into it and... I'm actually very grateful to be, you know, mixed because then I get that perspective just like ingrained in me. Um, But yeah, I think there's there's so many different cultures within our culture that, you know, it's nice to explore them all.
1: So I'm with Maria Kamar, also known by her Instagram alias Hate Copy. She's a popular Instagram visual artist. um, And we're talking in Toronto. I mean, I'm I'm Indian American. Um, you're Pakistani Canadian, I can't imagine that you are extremely familiar with the American diaspora experience, but what was it like for you moving to Canada when you were like nine years old? Um, and what was the community in Mississauga that you grew up in? Like,
2: I would describe it as primarily Caucasian (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, I was very, very happy, to move here because I had never experienced anything and like I had you know we had never gone on vacations to like Cuba or like things like that like to me coming to Canada was like one big vacation but what I didn't know is that we were leaving everything behind to come here We left, you know, I remember asking my mom what's going to happen to my toys. And she's like, oh, they're going to be here. We're going to come back for them.
1: Yeah, I don't believe that. Oh, we
2: never went back for those toys. I never saw them again. But that was the kind of just the life that we were living. We came here with, you know, is that is that immigrant hustle? We came here with nothing, you know, literally no money. We stayed with a family friend until we had enough. You know, my parents worked enough odd jobs to Get enough to move to a different unit in the same building, and then we kind of made more money and moved out. And us juggling school through that, and it was a lot of, you know, thinking about it. You think like, oh my god, that sounds like a lot of, like moving around and and shifting, and it must have been really tough on on you know a kid. But it, I was. I was excited all throughout because I thought it was just such a new experience. I mean, I saw No Frills and I lost my mind. I was like, this is where you get your groceries from? Where's the market? This is your market? It's air conditioned? That's amazing.
1: And No Frills being a local grocery chain here in Canada. You know, Walmart, Sam's Club, not all of them make the jump across the border.
2: Walmart also blew my mind. I was like, how is there food and technology under one roof? crazy but you know like little things like that i was just very happy to experience i mean where i grew up there was like a like a fisherman that would come into the neighborhood and ring a bell and then you had to go and get the fish and then you got to gut the fish i mean i'm just telling you way too much about where i come from but that's that's where that was the reality of where i grew up i grew up in like a little little town that like you had to do everything yourself and here everything was like automated so it was great
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I I moved from Bombay when I was seven and it's the same thing. I remember if we wanted meat, we would go to a butcher and the animal would be killed in front of us. Yeah. You know, I remember going to the market to get fish and like having to talk to a fishmonger. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's the same, You know, exactly the same story. Coming to the US, having no money, living paycheck to paycheck. And in my own experience, I mean, you know, choosing to be a journalist is not something that you know, as my family views as the most practical thing, especially since we can all remember a time when, you know, money was so hard to come by. Um, so I'm curious, like what the transition was like for you deciding to become a full-time artist and what, what it's been like in terms of your relationships with everyone close to you.
2: I, I mean, as I said, when I was, I think when I was like four or five, like I remember telling my, father that I wanted to be an artist and they would laugh it out be like oh here's some crayons go like draw something but that art education that encouragement to go draw something in the corner like oh just like make a pretty tree or whatever that encouragement just got canceled as soon as we came here it was like you're not drawing you're not painting you're not singing you're not dancing get rid of the arts from your mind that's not a thing that exists science business like law like law journalism actually made the cut, but anything, anything but art. And that to me was like record scratch. Like, no, 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 no wait. We talked about this. I wanted to be an artist. I want to be a famous painter. I want to do all these things. And then all of a sudden, no, I, ha- I got to be a pharmacist now. Not saying that I didn't try. I definitely was placed in a in a pharmacy, my my mother's friend was kind enough to let me work a summer job there, and I, I I realized that I wasn't I wasn't made out for to be a pharmacist. I ended up slicing my hand and dropping blood all over Yikes. the pills, over the pills. Um, and I got kicked out. I got fired very quickly. But um, art was always a thing that I knew I wanted to do. It was just difficult because I didn't know how to convince them that it was a lucrative. Not even lucrative. It was a st- it was something that w- that would bring us stability. This idea of stability was always looming over my head. Oh, how am I going to be stable? Um, and for somebody that has just been constantly moving around, and my whole life is unstable. I mean, I didn't even know what that meant. I still don't know what that means. To me, stability is, and that's also coming from a place of pri- like privilege because yeah. of obviously the family provided so that I could do this, but. It's also, you know, to me, stability is is being comfortable in where I'm at for the moment. Of course, our generation has to now hold, like, a job for, like, maybe two years before we find another one. Like, you can have four careers in your lifetime before you're 30. I mean, that's just the norm for us. So the concept of that old school stability, I know I'm not going to hold down a job for 45 years. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that feels like. So that was something that was very difficult to explain um and at the time we were getting personal computers like we are so old you know what i mean like i yeah. could but i could google and i could figure out like okay how much does an artist make how much does an animator make what are the careers in the arts like i could go and do that research and bring that to my family unfortunately no female artists, <laughs> no like social media, no, 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 nobody that's kind of doing things right now that I could go, oh, look, this person's in the arts. I could also do the same thing. So, un- unfortunately, I had to take a very long detour to get to where I'm at. But I'm hoping that it gets easier for younger girls and boys that, um, from South Asian backgrounds that want to get into journalism and the arts for them to find examples of people that are successful in those fields and doing what they're doing to bring back to their families and go, look, it could provide stability. These people are not dead. <laughs> they're, they're doing very well. Yeah. And, uh, and they're making a living.
1: And I, I really a lot to that. You know, growing up, there were not a lot of Indians or South Asians where we lived. Um, so I just spent a lot of time on the Internet. And yeah, there, there was nobody that I could present to my parents as the person that I wanted to be.
2: Yeah, I just gave up and started playing StarCraft.
3: Likewise. You must construct additional pylons.
2: Like, there's not enough information on Google, but there's there's Starcraft.
1: Um, well, this has been this has been extremely um, enlightening, and thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Is there anything else that that you want to say? You think is important?
2: The only thing I can plug is uh, I'm exhibiting at the Richard Tattinger Gallery in New York on July twenty fifth. And it will be up for a few months. So please go and check out my work in real life. There will be installations, paintings. I'll be there. You know, it'll be fun.
1: Um, are you coming to Chicago anytime soon? Have you, been here, have you been there before?
2: Also, if you own a gallery in Chicago, let me know. <laughs> uh, I would love to exhibit my work there. I'm a huge fan of Chicago. It's like Toronto 2.0. <laughs> oh,
1: my God. I've been thinking the same thing. There's a Lakeshore Avenue. There's Lakeshore Boulevard Exactly,
2: Pier. All the boulevards
1: top three biryani places in chicago
2: uh don't remember because i ordered them drunkenly at 4am
1: fair enough <laughs> all right um well yeah i've been with uh, maria kamar she's a popular instagram artist um south asian canadian and you can find her on instagram at her alias hate copy uh, maria it's really it's been a pleasure thank you for taking the time to join us
2: thank you so much for having me I Had a great time
0: Worldview's Ashish Valentine in Toronto. Check out that and more from our tour of the Great Lakes by visiting wbez.org slash wvbus and search social media with the hashtag wvbus. Coming up after the break, we'll hear an excerpt from the very first episode of Worldview in 1994. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 2019 marks 25 years that Worldview's brought you human stories from at home and abroad. Before Worldview goes off the air this fall, we wanted to bring you some selections from our deep archive. Doug Castle joined us for some special commentary on our very first show in 1994 to talk about the human rights situation in El Salvador.
3: Now that the wars of the 1980s in Central America have come mostly to an end, the region has slipped off the front pages and is in fact rapidly disappearing from public view in the United States. It would be a costly mistake, however, to ignore our neighbors to the south. The last time we allowed ourselves to forget about them was in the late 1960s and early 1970s when our gaze was fixed on places like Vietnam and Watergate. Meanwhile, Central America's political, economic, and social problems festered until they reached unmanageable proportions. Elections were stolen, death squads ran rampant, poverty intensified. The results were bloody wars in Nicaragua and El Salvador and massive repression in Guatemala. These devastated the region and forced hundreds of thousands of Central Americans to flee northward, including tens of thousands to Chicago. Now we are led to believe Central American wars have ended democratically elected civilian governments are in power, and the region is on the road to progress. It ain't necessarily so. Take El Salvador, for example, the country which the United Nations regards as a showcase of successful international intervention to promote peace and democracy. The UN and the U.S. do, in fact, have a great deal invested in trying to build peaceful democracy in El Salvador the UN spent two years brokering a comprehensive peace agreement, which not only ended the combat but sought political and economic reforms, ranging from judicial reform to land reform, designed to address the root causes of that nation's 12-year civil war, which left 75,000 dead and many more wounded and refugees. For three years now, hundreds of UN personnel, at times thousands, have been stationed in El Salvador, monitoring and cajoling a reluctant government and an unhappy but now demobilized FMLN guerrilla force. Much of the price tag for all of this has been paid, of course, by the United States. But will it succeed? The answer is far from clear. It is also not clear that U.S. policymakers understand the problems, let alone the solutions by way of illustration, take four key elements of any stable democracy. Elections, the army, the police, and the distribution of wealth. Yes, El Salvador has just held elections, which both the U.S. and the U.N. strained to characterize as democratic. The elections were won by the right-wing governing party, ARENA. Its candidate, former Death Squad crony Armando Calderon Sol, was inaugurated as president last week. Yet, hundreds of thousands of Salvadorans were effectively excluded from voting, and the response from the U.S. and the U.N. was too little and too late to ensure full participation or a perception of fairness. As a result, the losers feel not so much defeated as cheated, a recipe for trouble. As for El Salvador's army, it is supposed to be limited under the new Constitution to defending El Salvador from external threats. Yet no sooner was this historic restriction imposed on an army known mainly for massacring its own people than the U.S. Army initiated a campaign of so-called civic operations. Under this program known as Fuertes Caminos, the U.S. Army digs wells, builds clinics, and the like all worthy functions but for civilians, not the military, in a country where the key to success is confining the army within proper bounds. The police, previously controlled by the military, were supposed under the peace accords to become civilian and independent of the army. Yet the US has actually pressured the new police to accept entire units and army officers from the old repressive police, threatening to militarize the police anew. Already serious human rights violations by the new police are being reported. Finally, the US supports through various multilateral institutions an economic readjustment program designed to greatly reduce the role of the state and to privatize the economy. While this may be economically advisable in the long run, in the short run it has deepened El Salvador's already widespread poverty, and sharpened inequalities among classes. Democracy cannot long stand with one foot squarely on the backs of the impoverished masses. None of this is to say that the battle for democracy in El Salvador is lost. There are other hopeful signs. But democracy there is more endangered than the American public knows or than the U.S. Embassy seems to realize. The fundamental lesson for now is not to turn our backs on Central America. As has been said before, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. This is Doug Castle of the International Human Rights Law Institute of DePaul University for WBEZ's Worldview.
0: And that was a human rights commentary on the very first episode of Worldview on June 8, 1994. Salvadoran President Armando Calderón Sol left office in 1999 and died in 2017. Shortly after that first commentary on El Salvador, homicide rates fell. But since 2000, it's been one of the deadliest places on Earth. In 2014, President Sanchez Carin expanded the military's powers in civilian policing. Carin was succeeded by a third-party candidate, Naib Bukele, in February of this year. Also earlier this year, the Trump administration approved extensive joint operations between American and Salvadoran law enforcement. Despite that, Human Rights Watch reports that police and local authorities continue to carry out executions on behalf of the gangs that rule El Salvador. Between now and the fall, when Worldview goes off the air, we'll be bringing you more stories like this from our 25-year run. Coming up next week on Worldview, we're going to have some special shows from the Morton Arboretum. We'll talk about trees and climate change and the spirituality of trees. We're going to get naturey next week at the Morton Arboretum. Join us here on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
1: Я бывала, запевала, заменяла соловья. А где
2: ты А теперь, подружка Нина, замени-ка
1: ты меня. Нету голоса моего,
3: Что закрыть те
1: Стала
3: я хрипу.